When I was in high school, which I believe is uh, Video Gurna in uh, Ponorsk, I believe, I had a, a good friend who went to the, uh, a different church than mine. He went to the local uh, Pentecostal church in our town. But he was a good friend of mine. We ran on the track team and the cross-country team together. Uh, and he was also uh, one of, uh, of uh, several students who would gather every Tuesday morning for prayer. So we went to a public high school, but we would gather for prayer. And we did our best to be faithful to Jesus while being in a school where most people were hostile to Christ and to Christianity. And uh, this, uh, this friend of mine was a leader in this group. And uh, he was known uh, as a, a very energetic, very positive guy. He was very, just uh, not using in theological categories, but very charismatic, just a very bubbly, outgoing personality. Um, many people admired him, and he was a good role model. Uh, one day, uh, he let us know that he no longer believed in Christ. He, he walked away. Uh, he was uh, raised in a faith that taught him that if uh, he did certain things, if he believed enough, God would bless him with various material blessings and would give him success in, in this life, uh, more or less as the world views success. And when he lost that, that feeling and that fervor and the things he wanted to happen didn't come true, he walked away from Jesus. And that was a really hard blow for me and for my fellow students to see a friend, someone we looked up to, walk away from Jesus. And this text that we're going to look at this morning in uh, the second half of John 6 deals with why many walk away from Jesus. And I'm sure that you have uh, experience um, maybe similar things, whether it's with a family member or a friend who once seemed to be a true and genuine believer, uh, but then later in life walks away. And John is, is going to help us wrestle with why many walk away from him. Last week, as you may recall, um, I, my father, which was a great privilege to have him preach for two weeks, took us through the first half of uh, chapter 6. And we had that miracle, the one miracle that's mentioned in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. And we have this clear allusion to the wilderness when God gave Israel uh, quail and manna to eat. And that clearly continues in, in our context today as we see the Jews grumbling yet again in chapter 6. And in the Old Testament context, you'll remember God was abundantly faithful to the Israelites. He led them through a sea. He parted a sea so that Israel could escape the hand of Pharaoh from the bitter slavery and servitude that they had. God delivered them through that, and yet they get to the wilderness and they're complaining and they're grumbling. God faithfully fed them for 40 years, 
And yet because of their grumbling and their complaining and their refusal to enter the land, that whole generation died in the wilderness. But two men, Joshua and Caleb, who were allowed to go into the land. But a whole generation died in the wilderness, even when God gave them bread from heaven as a sign of his grace to them. And now we turn to John chapter 6, and we are going to see what happens and why these people reject the true bread from heaven, which is Jesus Christ, even in the midst of all the miracles and signs that Jesus did to them. So we're going to look at this text in two ways this morning. We're going to first look at how Jesus is the bread of life. And then secondly, we're going to look at why many walk away. I want to say one more thing before we get into these two points to just bring you up to speed with where we are in the book of John as a whole. Uh, Remember that John's gospel is all about the glory of Christ showing you these signs of glory that you might see and believe and have life in his name. And yet at the same time, there's this tragic note throughout the whole gospel that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. And so John is going to give us an illustration of this at this point in Jesus' journey. Today we're going to be spending our last days in Galilee before Jesus now goes to Jerusalem. And the rest of the gospel is going to be in Jerusalem, in the Judea, the area of Judea. And what we're going to see is, by and large, the people that should have been ready to receive him reject him. And there's going to be this growing hostility. And Hovar will show us more of that next week when he brings us through chapter 7, this growing hostility. The very people that should have received him, rejected him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And what John does in this chapter is to give us a theological framework for understanding why. And that's what we'll look at, especially in the second part of this message this morning. And it's going to be a hard saying. And I hope that it doesn't cause any of you to walk away from Jesus. So I'm praying, as I did in our prayer of illumination for soft hearts this morning, as Jesus speaks some hard words to the Jews in this context, but also to us as those who follow him today. So let's begin with the first point. Simply, John shows us that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. As we enter into this period in the gospel of this hardened resistance against Jesus, it's interesting that we also have the first of seven I am statements. So as we think about how John structures the gospel, it is interesting to me that when we finally get to this very clear and full disclosure of who Jesus is, these I am statements, rather than seeing this wholehearted embrace of Jesus, we see this hardened resistance. As the clarity about Jesus increases, so does the resistance against him. 
And so we have this first I am statement. I am the bread of life. And we're going to see more and more in the days that I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life and, and so forth. We get the first of these great I am statements. And as Jesus discloses himself more and more, we see a hardened resistance to him. As Jesus speaks these words, he hearkens back to Israel again in the wilderness. And that Exodus 16, something that should be this triumphant story and narrative that the people of God would pass down from generation to generation. It's actually a a tragic tale. It's a tragic tale because an entire generation had to die in the wilderness because they grumbled against God. Could you imagine? I don't know what kind of equivalent we could use today to take, like, the nation that we come from. Let's say that the nation we came from, Norway or America or Indonesia or wherever it might be, was in covenant with God. And God delivered our nation from its greatest enemy. But yet, rather than be thankful to God, to believe all the more when we've seen these great signs and wonders. We grumble and complain. And the reward is death in the wilderness. But God in his mercy and in the fullness of time sends the true bread from heaven. He sends Jesus. And we saw in, in the last week that a whole crowd, five, just the men were 5,000, all host came and was following Jesus. And they saw this miracle, this bread provided to them out of five loaves and two fish. And yet once again, we get later in the story when Jesus reveals the truth of what's going on, they grumble. But Jesus is the true bread from heaven. We see in verse 35, where Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And in verse 40, Jesus says to them, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? First and foremost, in verse 35, it means that those who come to him shall not hunger, and they shall never thirst. And I want to sit on that for a second, and then we'll talk about eternal life and being raised up on the last day. But what the crowd thinks Jesus is saying is, oh, you'll give me bread every day? Hey, I'll take that. Show us how to get this bread. I don't have to work. I just get bread every day. Hey, pretty good deal. But what Jesus is talking about is spiritual life, spiritual nourishment. You know, we live in a, we live in a world and we live in an age when our thought process is, when, process is is that when we're not happy or we're dissatisfied with life, we think we just need to get something or do something. There's something we need to buy 
or there's something we need to do, or I need to have this relationship, or this relationship needs to be like this, and then I would be better. You know, or maybe I need to move to this country. I've said it before. Sometimes you're like, man, I'd love to live in America. Well, America's great, but it's no bed of roses. There's a lot of depressed people in America, just like Norway and just like every country in the world. We constantly are looking for something to satisfy us, to fill our needs and our passions. But we constantly come up empty when we're seeking for things of this world to satisfy us. But all that's on the mind of these people is some material thing. But the only thing that will truly satisfy us is the life of God that's given to us by the Spirit through Jesus Christ, the true bread from heaven. So that if you want to experience life without hunger and life without being thirsty, it's finding your life in Jesus and in the spiritual life that he provides. So that the true bread is not a a thing and it's not an earthly relationship, but it's a walk with Jesus by faith. So that's what Jesus being the bread of life means of not hungering or thirsty. But it also means something else, and I already read it to you in verse 40. It means eternal life. It means that those who eat the true bread from heaven will live forever. The fathers ate the the bread in the wilderness and they died. But the bread that Jesus gives is a bread that will allow us to live eternally. But what does that mean? Does that mean we will be floating in the clouds one day when we die, kind of just in a a spiritual realm? No, because Jesus goes on to say, and I will raise him up on the last day. What Jesus is ushering in is not just a way to float around in the clouds as as spirit, spiritual, vaporous beings, but he's bringing in the new creation, the new creation that our bodies will be raised from the dust so that my, uh, my wife's grandfather who died this week will be raised from the dust. We saw him on his deathbed, weak and helpless. But he will be raised from the dust. And friends, while we will die, unless the Lord chooses to come before we die, our bodies are going to go in the ground, and whether they're buried or cremated, we're turned into dust. Our bodies are going to be eaten by worms like the leftover manna that the Israelites tried to hold on to. Our bodies are going to die. They're going to decompose. We'll be eaten by worms. But Jesus has promised that he will raise us up on the last day. That that this dust that is our bodies will be put back together in a new and glorified and heavenly way. And we will walk with Jesus forever, world without end. Amen. So that's what the bread of life means. 
We will never, even in this world, need to be hungry or thirsty in terms of our spiritual lives. And that we live and we feast with the hope of eternal life and being raised on the last day. That's what we should understand when we hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life. So then the question is, how can we feast on this bread? How do we get this bread? And Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So first and foremost, the way that we receive this bread is by faith. By faith. This is indeed the work of God. In verse 29, Jesus answered the skeptics, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now that's a pretty good job if you ask me. What is God's work? Jesus doesn't say jump through a bunch of hoops, go on a few pilgrimages to special spiritual places, make sure you get these indulgences, as was the case, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church. You've got to do all these things, and then hopefully maybe you make it. That's your work. Does Jesus say, this is the work of God that you believe? That you believe in him whom the Father has sent. So the requirement is faith. Secondly, Jesus also says that the requirement is feasting on Jesus. We see in verse 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What Jesus is saying here, I think I would argue is an expansion or an expression of faith. It's an expression of our faith. Indeed, it's something that we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We spiritually feed on the body and blood of Jesus by participating in the Lord's Supper. Uh, Now, whether or not Jesus was alluding to that and saying these things, it's pretty clear to me that John and and the early readers would understand this, that this is why we feast on the body and blood of the Lord through the Lord's Supper, as we give thanks to him. But again, that is something that is done by faith. The power and the efficacy of the Lord's Supper is not by faith, special elements, but it's by partaking in faith. Lastly, we see an expression of faith in verse 69. After many turned from Jesus, he said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So we're seeing the requirement to partake of the bread is faith. It's a faith that works itself out in in feasting on the body and blood of Jesus, or in other words, understanding that our life comes through his sacrifice. 
Our life comes through Jesus' death and resurrection. And thirdly, that it is a faith that understands that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Holy One of God. And I encourage and invite and hope that each one of you will embrace Jesus as the bread of life and that you will believe in him and that you will have life in his name and that you will not be like the majority who saw the disclosure of Jesus and rejected it. As is still the case today, most walk away from Jesus. And I pray that that would not be true of any of you here. But the question now is, why do many walk away from Jesus? And now we get into the, uh, a very hard saying of Jesus. We're going to look at four reasons for why many walk away. Four reasons. The first is wrong motives. Wrong motives. And we see in verse... Uh, 26 after this crowd moved across the sea to seek after Jesus Jesus says to him you are seeking me not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of loaves these people are seeking Jesus like those who follow Joel Osteen today or the word of faith preachers to have your best life now. Come on, give me the money. Give me my car. Give me my dream job. Give me my house. Give me that woman. People are following Osteen and these word of faith preachers and they're in Norway too. They're in Amer- I'm sorry all the garbage comes from America. I apologize for that. A lot of garbage comes around the world from America, including the word of faith, gospel, which is no gospel at all. And they are following Jesus because they think Jesus can give them what they want. So Jesus is like the genie in the bottle. We're just going to rub Jesus, and then he'll give me what I want. And that's what's going on here. In verse 26, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. It is sadly true that there are many, and I pray that's not the case with those sitting here, but there are many sitting in churches, whatever stripe, whatever denomination, that are there because they think Jesus will give them something notoriety, fame, position in society, though that's less and less in these days of growing hostility to the faith. How many of the, the clergy in the days of the medieval church were there simply because they got power and fame? And they destroyed the church, and there was a need for a great reformation. And it's sadly still the truth today. How many even podcast preachers or kind of celebrity preachers today have we seen in recent days walk away from Jesus. They were in it for the fame. They might even been self-deceived in that, but that's where they ended up. 
and they walked away from Jesus. Think of uh, Joshua Harris recently, uh, and and we can think of others as well. Why do many walk away from Jesus? We see here, number one, because they have wrong motives. But here's a, a second and more foundational reason why. They don't believe. They don't believe. Jesus says in uh, verse 36, he says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So you can have a whole crowd of people following after Jesus, and yet a bunch of them don't even believe. And that's what's undergirding these wrong motives. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They just believe he can give them what they want. They do not believe. And uh, Jesus says in verse 63 and 64, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Third, a third reason why many walk away. Because they grumble. They're skeptical and they're proud. They're proud people. These people are those that take great offense at the words of Jesus. We read in verse 60, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? So the message, the true gospel, was deeply offensive to these disciples. And so they walked away. They grumbled. How can this man be the bread of life? Don't we know his parents? How can he say he came from heaven? How can we feast on his body and blood? How can we have eternal life by believing in his name? They were offended at the message. They were offended at the message. How many, how many Christians today, how many sadly pastors today, have changed the message of the gospel in order to not offend the crowd? Saying things like, Jesus loves you just the way you are. Just come to say that, oh, Jesus, those things aren't sin anymore. It was just was a cultural thing then. We could, we could name a lot of things that churches have scrubbed away from the scriptures to not offend the culture, to fi- try to be accepted by the culture. The gospel is offensive. The Jews hated it. The Greeks hated it. What's the principal thing about the gospel that is offensive? And that's what we're going to get at here now, which is a fourth thing. Why was their pride so offended? It's because 
no one can come to Jesus unless the Father allows them to come. Let me say that again. No one can come to Jesus, I'll put it another way, except by sovereign grace. If the only way that you can come to God is if God lets you come to him, that's an offensive thing to someone who thinks that they should be able to go to God on their own terms. If you say to someone, you can't come to God unless God allows you to come to him through Christ, that means that you're not God. That means that you're not in charge of your life. That means that you are not the all-controlling person in your life to dictate and do what you want. Now, where, where do I get the rationale for saying this? This is the hardest of all sayings, I think, in the Bible because it deals with the sovereignty of God. It deals with our depravity and our inability to come to him apart from grace. And a big part of that doctrine comes from John chapter 6. So Jesus says to them in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And he goes on and he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread. Jesus goes on to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. And here in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John is, is picking up a theme that he, be, that he began in the prologue of the gospel. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. Jesus came to save a people who were born by the will of God, not the will of man. We see that in the prologue, and now John picks up this theme in John chapter 6, when Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And he makes two additional statements to reaffirm this message that was so offensive to the Jews. In verse 44, he says, No one can come to me. No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So he's saying, he's not saying most people can't come to me unless he's saying no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Moreover, in verse 63, after they grumbled, 
excuse me, I should say verse 65, after they grumbled, Jesus said to him, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The most offensive statement to man's pride is that you can't do something unless God allows you to do it. And the most offensive thing to most religious people in this world today is that you cannot come to God on your own merit and on your own strength. You must be drawn by the Father. All the world's religions, except for Christianity, teach a merit-based pathway to deity. That you do these certain things, and then that will guarantee you the entrance to God. But Christianity and the words we have from the Word of God are both, are both the most damning to man and at the same time most gracious to the people of God. Because you are totally depraved. You cannot get to God unless He draws you. But at the same time, those whom God has chosen will be saved, will come. All the Father gives me will come to me. And that is the gospel. And that is the gospel. This doctrine, sometimes called uh, Calvinism, sometimes called the doctrines of grace, sometimes just simply referred to the sovereignty of God or predestination. There's a number of different titles that we can use. Is largely based on Jesus' words in John 6. These are fundamental texts to, the, to these doctrines of grace. And I remember I really wrestled with this when I turned 20 years old. I grew up, you guys got to see my dad preach these last two weeks. I grew up as a pastor's kid uh, in 10th grade for me. And I don't know what grade that is in, in Norway, 11 maybe, grade 11. Uh, but anyways, um, my dad encouraged me to read through the whole Bible for the first time. And I did that. Uh, and that was a really important moment in my life as a young adult, to read through the whole Bible. And if you haven't done that, I would strongly encourage you to do that. Find a reading plan and read through the whole Bible. And uh, that was really formative for me. And I did that as a 10th grader. And then uh, in my uh, early college years, I ran into some guys that were called Presbyterians. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> and they talked about the Reformation, what the Reformation was about. And they talked about Calvinism and all this stuff. And I, and I started to like have to learn and read about what this was. And when <clears throat> I started to read, I was like, and learn about it, I was like, wait a minute. We don't choose God. God chooses us. And I really hated that idea. That bothered me a lot. This idea that God determines who comes to him, I hated that idea. And I really wrestled with it for about a year. But I kept going back to all these things I read when my dad encouraged me to read through the whole Bible. 
And I found all of these texts that were saying the same thing and showing and highlighting God's sovereign grace. Like God works all things according to the counsel of his will, uh, that he does all things for the good of the loved and that he does among the hosts of heaven and among the heavens of the earth uh, all that he wills and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Just seeing that this is, we are hopeless. We are helpless without God. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. And Ephesians 1, we were predestined to be for adoption in him and so on and so forth. And I basically came to this point where I either had to believe that I had more wisdom than God or the Bible, or I had to believe what the Bible was saying. But I couldn't hold both. I think a lot of Christians growing up are what I call Calvinian. Calvinism and Arminian, you're kind of a mixture of both. Where, yeah, I want a strong God, but I also want free will. I want both. But you can't, you can't have both. You can't have both. And so either I could remain in my pride and say, no, I'm keeping my free will, my way to God. I don't care what these verses say. Or I need to embrace what is frankly biblical Christianity and the biblical gospel and lay my pride down. And, and by God's grace, he uh, enabled me to do that. And um, I'm eternally grateful for it. I wouldn't be here today if I had not done that. But this doctrine of God's sovereign grace and salvation is the most offensive part of the gospel. It's, it's way more offensive than even that Jesus needed to die for your sins or that, you know, hey, you're sinful, you're a sinner. It's even more offensive than that because it's telling you there's nothing you can do apart, about it apart from God's sovereign grace. And when the majority of the disciples heard this in John 6, they walked, they walked away. They said, that's too much for me. And they're out of there. And the question is, what will you do about these hard sayings of Jesus? Will you walk away or will you follow him? Will you be like Peter who said, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. I hope that you're not like um, one well-known theologian named uh, Roger Olson I read this article, Do Arminians and Calvinists Worship the Same God? It's an interesting article. And uh, an Arminian writes the response to that. And um, I think to be charitable, Arminians and Calvinists worship the same God. So just for the record, so you don't hear me wrong. But I think that the the Arminian view of God, uh, I realize that's maybe not a, a term maybe some of you are familiar with, but this this idea that it's up to us to, to go to God, this Armenian view, to put it in a really simple way, I don't believe accurately reflects the gospel or the God that we worship. And this well-known famous Armenian says, I have said that if it were revealed to me in a way I could not doubt that the God of consistent 
five-point Calvinism is the one true God over all, the maker of heaven and earth, I would not worship him because I would not think him worthy of worship. That's a scary and a sobering statement. And I, I pray for this man's soul. If, he's, if we take Jesus' words at face value, this Christian theologian would not think God worthy of worship. And that's a, that's a sober and scary thing to say. It's perhaps the most painful thing in the world to see a, f- a family member walk away from Jesus or a deep friend. We have a, a family member who has walked away from Jesus on Deborah's side, and that's, that's probably the most painful thing for Deborah in life to know that. And uh, I don't know all of your stories and. Uh, that my best friend growing up walked away from Jesus. We served in ministry together, and he walked away from Jesus. I want to close with this exhortation to you to study who your God is from the Bible, <laughs> trusted sources that can help you understand biblical theology. I would encourage you to read our theological standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. It's just a summary of Reformation theology. Uh, And the doctrines of grace aspect is embraced by Reformed Baptists and uh, Reformed Congregationalists, not just Presbyterians. These were the doctrines of grace that were recovered, these kinds of things that we talked about today. And know who your God is so that you are not surprised or betrayed in the day of trial for you when you realize God's something different than you thought and you walk away from him. This is a call for all of us to study the word better. And I pray that rather than being those then that harden your heart and say, this is a hard saying and you walk away, you say with Peter, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So God may, may God have mercy on those who have walked away. And may God have mercy on us. And let's continue to follow Jesus, to feast on the bread of life, and to anticipate with joy the resurrection of our bodies on the last day. Amen. Let's pray.